I'm Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist. And this is a space for young people, families, and professionals who want to understand neurodiversity and mental illness better. I'm here to help you make sense of the most complex of issues in the simplest of ways. Let me walk you through topics that are important to you, from autism to trauma and from depression to self-harm. In this podcast, I'll bring you expertise, explain the science and equip you with practical tips and knowledge. Join me, Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist, for 30 minutes every Wednesday on all listening platforms. This is Dr. Tagrid again, and today I've got with me my colleague, Zoe Roscoe. Zoe is a, a cognitive and behavioral psychotherapist, and she is very good at her job. And thank you very much for joining me today, Zoe. Thank you for having me. So today, Zoe and I thought we're going to talk about accessibility. People with disabilities, physical disabilities, cognitive disabilities, hidden disabilities, obvious disabilities, and how they access um, mental health care and the, the prejudices around that, the difficulties around that. And before we start, I just want to nod my head in respect to people with disabilities and uh, people with ongoing health difficulties in the middle of the um, current events and the genocide happening in Gaza and the events happening in the West Bank. As I was preparing for this, I was thinking about them and I was thinking about the privilege that we have talking about this and about accessibility issues when people are struggling to get basic medical attention and supply. So today we're going to cover a few things about disabilities and Zoe, you've been so kind to join me today and to talk about your lived experience as well. So I'll let you say hello to everyone. Hello. Hi, everybody. Tell me about your experience, who you are. So I am a cognitive and behavioral psychotherapist. I work in children's mental health. And since I became a therapist, I, I have become disabled. I have an acquired brain injury which is called an arthrovenous malformation. That's a tangle of vessels in the brain that causes a clot and it restricts access to the blood supply in my brain. And unfortunately, at the age of 21, this bled um, and I now have permanent left-sided hemiplegia as a consequence. So I don't have any use of my left hand I have spasticity all up the left side of my body, which affects how I walk, how I hold myself. And I experience neurological deficits as an as a immediate effect of that. Sort of my working memory, my speech, my processing abilities and being overstimulated by certain parts of my environment, like the lighting, like um, other people talking too much at once. It's been a real journey, not only finding myself in my career and sort of going through my 20s, going through that exploration of where I want to be in my life. I've had the other layer of relearning how to use my body to get me where I want to be and my brain to, to relearn things that I didn't think I would have to relearn on top of getting to where I want to be in my career. And 
your job is very, very demanding. It has all of the above, all of the things that challenge you in that way. As we were talking before we, we, we started recording, I was thinking, what were, in your experience, you, you got ill very, very young. What was the biggest change that you felt in your day-to-day life, apart from the difficulty in accessing what you used to access, but what hit you? What was the biggest thing that you felt, my life has completely changed now? So when when I was first discovered my brain injury at 21, because of my age, I find it incredibly difficult to be believed, find it incredibly difficult to be taken seriously about these changes that I were noticing in my own body. Because I was young, I wasn't associated with having a stroke. So they might have, you know, looked up other routes to explain my difficulties around my periods, my menstruation around um, certain stresses like going to university was having on my life like drinking alcohol was stigmatized and um, because I was at university at the time I thought maybe it was alcohol consumption why I was experiencing this transient left-sided weakness which now we know was symptoms of um, TIAs and um, I think that that was really difficult because it restricted my ability to explain to employers what was going on with me and also explain to professionals about why I thought I needed to have a a brain scan and to find out what organic causes are going on from this rather than it blaming lifestyle factors. It sounds like you felt silenced and you felt that in a way your lifestyle, oh, it's you, it must be your choices, you're too young, you can't be experiencing this, it must be all in your head. and. Do you think that stayed with you? I do have, sometimes I do have a sense of proving that I am disabled. I thought once I was registered as having a disability and I had, I had proven it through the government system of applying for personal independence payment, like the disability benefit, I thought, right, now everyone's going to leave me alone now. They'll believe that I am physically and cognitively impaired and now a whole list of support is going to follow, a whole process of adjustments and how to adapt to my world people will come knocking on the door and tell me what I'm entitled to that just doesn't happen and so for me I think being silenced has made me have to prove myself more maybe I have overcompensating academically maybe wanting to get further than where, where I want to be maybe wanting to not ask for help when I need help maybe just other areas of my life where I feel like a bit more offended than I usually would be because I I would expect that that would be common sense for people to hold the door open for you when you've got something in your hands or not book meeting venues where there's stairs and no lifts. I just assumed that society would adapt around me. It just never did. We were talking about this when we first agreed to meet and it left me thinking some of the things that you you said to me about meeting venues, seeing people, asking people ahead of time, are you able to do steps? Are you able to cope with this or that? And I realized, actually, I don't do that routinely. I don't ask people routinely. And, and it made me think about if we can 
if we can just, sometimes I think it, it has to do with ignorance and it sometimes it has to do with just assuming, assuming that people can cope. And if they cannot cope, then they will say something. Uh, and it's, I think, attributing a lot of power and a lot of um, of capability to people who are often, who often feel silenced and often feel ignored and often feel like it's their fault. They're behind. They're behind. You have to catch up. If you can't do this, then you shouldn't be here. And I was thinking about this earlier because I was asking you, what is a good term to use? What is a sensitive term to use to refer to people with disabilities? And, and I was thinking about this and reading up about it. And I was thinking, why, why am I reading about it? Why am I thinking about it too much? Am I afraid of being seen as treating people with disabilities differently? Is this kind of a trying to be positively biased? trying to ignore, if I don't, if I pretend like I don't see the disability, if I call it differently abled, or if I call it, if I pretend like I don't see it, then it would just, I wouldn't be offended. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be offensive. I wouldn't be excluding someone. And, and I was thinking about how difficult the conversation would be when I ask you about how you got your injury, how you became disabled. Because I was thinking, I have to be very sensitive about this. I've never asked you, I've worked with you for ages and I never asked you about it. And I wondered, why did I never ask you? Do people ask you? Mixed. People ask, I, I would always be honest, but it's taken me a long time to find the words to describe it. I always thought that once I became disabled, especially when I had my splints on, I don't anymore. I felt like I had blue flashing lights on me and it was incredibly obvious. And that's why I thought people weren't asking me was because it was so obvious. I look, they can tell, why do I need to explain it? And then now I'll have people saying, oh, I had no idea. I didn't even notice that, you you know, you couldn't use your left arm um, or your left hand. I didn't notice that you walked differently or you couldn't carry those things. And I used to take that as a compliment because I thought, yes, I have lasted it enough that people can't tell that I'm disabled so I would do little strategies like I'd put my hand in my pockets or I wore a splint where my pants could go over I'd wear shoes that you wouldn't see my metal foot in there I'd, I'd, I'd find compensation strategies so I found that as a real compliment when nobody did ask me because I thought like I was suppressing it and no one could tell now I'm more comfortable in my body and explaining it I don't know like people still don't treat me any differently. People still don't always accommodate or help me when I drop things or offer to carry things or open doors for me. So actually nothing that I did treat made other people more or less accepting or inclusive. Are you offended when people ask you? Not anymore. What was offensive in the past when people asked you what happened? It was more of the visibility of it I'm seeing. You know, it was the vulnerability that it put me in because I hadn't lived my whole life as disabled. I was still getting used to seeing myself in the mirror looking differently. And if I heard that portrayed back to me of, oh, what have you done to your hand? <gasps> if it caught me off guard, I, I had a quite traumatic 
incidences around becoming disabled that I, I would have flashbacks in that moment of times where I'd fallen over and people had stepped over me in public and tutted at me because I looked like I was drunk. I'd assume that people at work would think that I'm slowing my speech because I'm intoxicated or, you know, because of these prejudices that I've experienced. Even now, sometimes when I pull up at work, I don't always park in the disabled bit, especially at a new job or with a new team because I don't want them to think that I'm taking the make or that I'm a fraud. I think I do have this like other imposter syndrome of thinking that I'm not disabled enough to be part of that community. And do you think that's different in your social life to it to how it felt at uni or at work? It's taken me nine years of being a young disabled female to find another young disabled female with my different abilities. So it's only this year I found adapted athletes who train in the gym with limb differences. So they have amputees of like upper extremity of their arms. I've met another young guy who is a stroke um, athlete. I've met a great guy with dwarfism. It's taken me nine years to find these people because you... I told a very a spectrum of disability, sort of the stereotypical media portrayal of benefit scroungers and fraud, or you've got Paralympic athlete. and just couldn't find anywhere one in between. There must be young disabled people at work, living their life, having a family, still haven't met a disabled mum yet in my life, but they must be out there. So where are they? <laughs> So my social life is very much the same friends as I had at university, but I probably have become more withdrawn and isolated um, away from people that couldn't understand it or was quite prejudiced towards it unintentionally. Um, but I finally, finally found the community of people my age with similar disabilities. Why is it so hard to find them? <laughs> I'm, I'm, my my first thought is probably they're masking as well. They're trying to fit in in a world that because I'm trying to to think about those months and years that followed and and um, the start of your illness and how things progressed and how that impacted on your relationships. And if you were feeling that you were trying to prove I'm ill, this is my body, this is not. I'm not faking this. I'm not making this up in your, in your university, to your employers. How did that feel to your friends and, and your family? And did that have a cost on your relationships? Thankfully, I'm with the same partner that I was before I had my injury. So I met Billy when I was at school and he's watched me change from being able-bodied Plan on going to university once I finished. Plan on going to Australia. Sorry, once I finished university, we had our flights booked. We had our like we had our plans. We we're going to travel for two years. We we're going to live out there, and then it was my final year. My, not only my life stopped, but his life stopped, and he's now brushing my hair. He's now washing me in the bath. He's now putting my socks on. He's now doing my bra up because I can't get my arms out my back. You know, he became my carer. And I am, um, you know, it, it was traumatizing for them as well because I was very independent, with big hopes and plans for the future. And now suddenly all of that stopped and I had a no fly policy on my 
you know, no high blood pressure, no stress, no drinking, no flying, nothing that could put me at more risk of hemorrhage. I was a nervous wreck living in a bubble. So then I, I went from university back to my mum's, whereas I massively dependent on her and my brother and my stepdad and my partner to live. Like I felt completely regressed into a childlike state where I, I didn't do anything for myself. I had to relearn everything. It's incredibly hard. And I can't imagine what it was like for them to have to watch me do that. I know that they get upset now still around anniversaries, but the more incredibly proud rather than sad now it's getting to the 10-year mark that even they believed the trajectory that was painted to us by professionals that this is as good as it gets plateau was used a lot and I hate that word now I had a year of physiotherapy and was told by professionals this is about as good as you're gonna get you still can't lift your arm above your head you still can't walk independently you won't be able to live a, you know, a normal life again. So if that's drip feeding on me, that drip fed on everyone around me. Thankfully, I have a very strong mum and husband now that was like, no, no, we're not accepting that. We're getting up, we're getting on with our life, whatever that looks like. So my husband, Billy, converted our van into a camper van. So it's disability friendly so getting in and out of it with grab rails I could take my medication I could have a lie down so we could still travel and see the world it's very um, very very lucky that I had those people around me wow and you are someone who's very and I and when I started this by introducing you by saying you're very good at your job what I meant was exceptional you are exceptional at your job and I worked with you for the past we worked together for over a year and I've personally learned a lot from you professionally and personally in how you conduct yourself and how you, you view things and how you formulate cases. So how did, does that impact your practice as a therapist? Do you work with young people, very complex young people um, and children? Um, and you adapt your cognitive behavioral therapy. So you don't work just purely cognitive behavioral therapy off a manual. You adapt that quite a lot. You have a massive toolbox. How does your experience impact that toolkit, that toolbox, and impact the way that you see young people and treat them? I have a different lens that I see the world in now, which I'm incredibly grateful for. I'm much more aware of barriers that I just didn't know existed because I took it for granted as a full-limbed adult, uh, young female that could, you know, go to festivals and could go to hospital appointments and get into supermarkets without any problems. So suddenly basic things that I want to do was now incredibly difficult. I had to plan to the nth degree before I could even get there. So you know, it's just made me a lot more aware of the social model of disability, that I am not the problem. My body is not the problem. It's society and how that is created that is handicapping me from accessing what I need. So how I think about that when I go into therapy is if I have, you know, a family that aren't attending appointments and I know that there's a history of 
you know, they're a young carer or there's some physical disabilities in the family or there's some learning disabilities in the family. What can I do? What was it? What is within my control and my remit to make that more accessible for them? And I don't feel like that's a big ask. It might be, it's just a conversation. It's a conversation of what kind of things are getting in the way of you attending? Is there anything that I can do to make this less stressful for you? I just think as adults, we do that anyway for ourselves. If we're going for an interview, we'll research who's going to be there. We'll probably do a dummy run and do the transport. We'll plan the journey. Well, why aren't we offering our patients that privilege of knowing us first before they come to our appointments? Being able to plan their journeys or offer them support on parking, bus routes, letters that are readable in their language or in their interpretation, whether it's Braille or large print. Are we trying to fit them into a model of stopping an appointment within an hour? Can it not be a 90 minute appointment? You know, could it be a half an hour appointment? These are small changes that we can make that will allow people to be vulnerable because they will already feel it coming into the into the hospital that they might have already had negative experiences with. You know, will it just create that bridge to get where they want to be and be comfortable enough with you to share those vulnerabilities because we work in a mental health service. I'm asking them to be honest. I'm asking them to be transparent. But am I, you know, am I giving them the tools to be able to do that? And I just think therapy is another learning environment. We are teaching young people how to cope. We're teaching them how to survive whatever circumstances that they're in. We're teaching them to develop resilience. They're in education five days of the week, nine till three. There'll be adults in their life that can say, oh, actually, they don't, they can't pay attention for very long. There'll be other adults in their life that'll say, you know, we meet them at reception to help them walk to where they are. You know, there will be learning adjustments like we always set them at the front of class or we provide them with different coloured printouts or overlays. Why are we, you know, why can't we get that information and, and use that? in our therapy I want to make sure that they're getting the most out of putting themselves out there so I try and be a lot more creative and think outside the box during my assessment phases um, and I will never rule out organic causes so I'm a lot more aware of changes in sudden changes in behavior sudden changes in speech or concentration or sort of any predisposing factors or health conditions in the family I like to get a bigger picture of their health so then that isn't overlooked and isn't solely explained by psychological factors because I think that you know brain injury can be overlooked and it shouldn't be overlooked that there might have been repeated hospital visits as a child from falling off a bike for example you know it might be just a single question but that might have had a huge impact on that child and how their brains developed so I think for me it's given me a real unique way of looking assessing and working collaborating with young people that I just didn't have before from the beginning, it's a weird divorce between mind and brain. And I think it's important to get them back together again, because um, sometimes 
What really annoys me sometimes is that people tend to split between what's happening organically in your brain and your body and what's happening in your mind and your consciousness. And that's very bizarre to me because it's like saying, oh, oh, this is only happening to your lungs. You know, oh, your lungs are not related to your breathing. And it just does not make sense to me because like you said, what um, um, there's a movie about um, the um, a lady who was very late diagnosed with encephalitis, which is an inflammation of the brain. And that followed being diagnosed with psychosis. People thought she was making it up. People thought she was um, a, a drug user. It's called Brain on Fire and it's based on a book she wrote. She has an AVN. She does. It's unbelievable, but actually in many sad ways, it is believable because how many times do we see this? And people are intimidated when they see professionals, when they see mental health professionals, especially when they don't know what's going on with them and they're looking for that answer. And if you tell them, well, you know, um, you, you know, I don't believe you or you don't say I don't believe you straight away, but you say, oh, it's in your head. Oh, oh, can't you read this? I mean, it's it's obvious. Or people um, talk at young people or at adults and they don't really check if the person understands. And I've, how many times have you had a young person go like, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and you go like, do you understand what I'm just said? And they go like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Would you like to repeat that to me? And it's like, and they'll agree to things. They'll say yes to things. And it's like, wow. What really gets me as well is that sometimes parents are excluded from that thought process. Like, you know, you think, oh, it's all about adapting this to the young person. The young person has a learning difficulty. They need support to read or they need support to, they need, you know, they have a hearing difficulty or a visual difficulty or they have a learning disability. We need to adapt everything to the young person. But also we forget that the parent often has difficulties of their own. And, and you're asking them to make decisions sometimes for the young person um, and bring the young person and support the young person. But we forget that. We forget that they don't really have a voice in that setting to say, oh, actually, I don't understand what you're talking about. I'm wondering about neurodiversity and hidden disabilities. We talked a little bit about visible disabilities, you know, mobility issues or um, visual or hearing difficulties. How, how do you view your work with people with autism or on the autistic spectrum or people with ADHD or people with um, learning disabilities? How does that impact your work? I get a real excitement from working with this population. It, I genuinely do because I feel like this is an opportunity for me to help them navigate their world and to understand their brain but to also normalize how they're feeling so I think I do have an expert by experience element that I can bring to the room that not many other people can in their challenges that they're facing with getting lost in a busy school or being overstimulated by crowded environments 
of finding it difficult to switch attention from one task to another. And these children have internalized that as something is wrong with me. I'm broken. There is a difference in me that I want fixing. And I find this a great opportunity not only to educate the young people, but also the systems and the family around them, but that we are not a service that is here to make that child neurotypical. We are not here to fix and make their brain function to make other people manage better. Actually, it's our responsibility to make reasonable adjustments that is protected under the Disability Rights Act and within their learning and home environments, then they can thrive. It is our responsibility as the people around that young person to help them thrive. And if we can give them more tools in order to speak up and ask for what they need and to understand their brain better, then hopefully we can change that trajectory enough that we can minimise the chance of developing those comorbid mental health disorders later down the line. There's a lot of it about acceptance as well. And it's, um, it always, it's, it's, it's going back to what we, I think we've gone full circle because at the beginning we were talking about people around you and around a person who's going through these changes, not accepting in a way, you know, the social, society's not accepting those differences and it kind of projects into oneself and reflects into oneself that, you know, I, I don't accept, I don't accept that I can do this. I don't accept that I view the world differently. I don't accept that I cannot um, do what I used to do. And for these young people who are neurodiverse, they're born into a world that's from the get-go different. They can detect or verbalize enough to say that, oh, actually, I don't um, view relationships like this or uh, jokes go over my head or I don't understand implicit meaning because they never did. They don't know what implicit meaning is. They don't know how to explain it because they don't know that it exists. And, and then I think what I'm, I think what the, the, what I want to tell people who are listening to this is that, um, if you're a professional, please do ask, please do check. But also if you're a if you're a carer or a family member, if you're or if you're someone who's going through therapy or going through um getting mental health support or getting any kind of support, try to tell people what you're struggling with. And what I tell people sometimes is well, it's very intimidating to be with me in a room. And I get that because seeing a doctor is scary. I, I'm scared of my GP. I'm gonna be very honest. <laughs> Not because he's scary, but because it's because I've got 10 minutes with him and I need to explain everything in 10 minutes quite eloquently. And often I leave the room and I go like, I didn't say that I have that. Why did I say yes? <laughs> you know, and that's, and that's me. I'm a fully grown adult. So I tell people, you know what, why don't you write down what you want me to do? Um, and what you want to, what I can do to make things easier. Should I be looking at you straight in the eye? Because a lot of, a lot of my young people with autism don't like being looked at. It's very annoying and it gets them very distracted. So, so I say, write it down before you come to the appointment and just hand it to me. You don't even need to read it. Just hand it to me and I'll, I'll, I'll try to understand it. And if you need help from a parent or someone that you're comfortable with, 
sit them down and and talk to them about um you know make a list of what you're worried about in the appointment what you're worried about when you talk to me so i think i think as we come to the end of our of our chat i'm very grateful for your for your honesty today and for bringing your own experience to this because we we work with people that don't know us all the time they don't know where we come from they don't know what our lived experiences and we don't often share that unless it's very clear people don't know and and it's important to say that what you go through affects how you work and how you view people and as to your expertise i think massively and let's summarize a couple of actionable points for people if you're a professional, ask. If you're a young person, write down what you're worried about. Is there anything you wanna you wanna add, Zoe? I just wanna share the message that no one's expecting everyone to be an expert in everyone's disability. Just ask. There will be an adult or a young person in front of you that can you can empower to tell you what works for them, what adjustments would be helpful for them to make them feel more comfortable. You don't have to be an expert in it. We all do it without a disability. We're all very good at adapting our own environments to make sure that we get the best out of an interview or a learning experience. So, you know, I would just like people listening to this to not go away and feel intimidated or feel overwhelmed because you are probably already doing these things. And what I would maybe hope is that people are more mindful to do that a little bit more. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me today, Zoe. Thank you for joining me today. Remember to check the show notes for helpful resources and support. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe to our channel and get notified about the latest episodes. This is Dr. Tigrid, wishing you well.